As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Today's episode is something of a rewind feature as we welcome an Irish boxing legend to the show. It's 25 years since his second victory over Nigel Benn, having done the double over Chris Eubank the previous year. We are, of course, joined by Steve Collins, the Celtic warrior, a two-way world champion, and a man who many say is Ireland's greatest boxer of the modern era. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, something we've been meaning to do for a long time. We've discussed your career, your ups and downs with other people, but it's great to have you uh, on yourself to discuss it all. Yeah, no, good to be here. <laughs> if, if there was no downs, everything was an up. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's rare in boxing, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, if, if it all goes one way and everything's hunky-dory, it's, you just don't know what's, what, what is, you know, really are like and how you handle Downtimes for the Uncle Bear Award. Um, everything that happened to me, I wouldn't change because at the end of my career, it brought me to a place where it brought the best out in me at the right time. And up to this moment, this day in my life, everything that's happened to my past has brought me to where I am today. And where I am today is a great place. So I wouldn't change anything in the past, whether it's negative or positive. It's, it's brought me to where I am today. So everything that happened in the past has been, in my opinion, is great because of where I am now. That's a good outlook to have. We might start off by asking about uh, your first world title, the WBO middleweight belt. You beat uh, Chris Pyatt in 1994 to win it. We had your brother Packy on recently discussing that fight. Yeah, um, I recall, you know, Chris Pyatt was a very, very good fighter. Chris Pyatt was, you know, it'll probably sound like I'm taking the credit away from myself. Chris Pyatt was a good junior middleweight. I was a boiled down super middleweight. I was a much physically bigger man than Chris Pyatt. Um, so, you know, I had a big advantage going into the ring uh, against Chris. At the same time, I had a big disadvantage because I was struggling to make weight and I wasn't, I just wasn't getting the, 
the opportunities of a title fight at middleweight, being around the middleweight top 10 for most of my career and just wasn't getting the knock on the door. No one was giving me the opportunity to fight. Chris Pyatt's fight came about more or less through default. It wasn't Chris Pyatt's offer or willingness to fight me. He was more or less ordered to and had to through default. Um, and I was going to retire just before I got that fight offer because I was I really could not make the weight anymore. It was really killing me and I was struggling at middleweight just to, just to make the scales. And that was my biggest my biggest obstacle there. My biggest opponent in that era was, was the weighing scales. Going back to my amateur career, I won titles at heavyweight a box international, a light heavyweight, a boiled down to middleweight as an amateur. And middleweight and amateur was a good um, five, six pounds heavier than middleweight and professional. So, you know, at 31, 31 years old, 30 years old, to be still boiling yourself down to make 11 stone six with my frame and my height and my physique was, was becoming impossible and it's becoming unhealthy to me. And, and I, was, I was thinking of calling it a day until, the, you know, the Chris Pye fight came along. And when it did come along, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was a great chance. Was, I, you know, I always believed that I would win it. But on the scales, I look at photographs now of me in the scales then. I looked like something from a concentration camp. I was, my ribs were sticking out. I was so skinny and so weak, and I just looked pasty and ill. And you know, Chris Pyatt was you know, going up a little bit of weight, so he, he was strong. And I don't think Chris Pyatt realized how much stronger than me he was. I think he thought because I was bigger than him, I'd be stronger than him. So he, he didn't jump on me. And I think if Chris Pye had jumped on me on that night, I wouldn't have had the strength to maintain his, his attack. And uh, so, you know, I, I was lucky to get away with that. And I just knew that because I was a bigger man than him, that if I landed the right shot, I, I would knock him out. And I was waiting, you know, for the opportunity to come along in the fight. I practiced, you know, the punches, the combination was going to throw. And uh, luckily enough, it came along in the early part of the fight. And it was, it was, it was good I got him out there. Because I don't think I had the strength to go 12 rounds. That's interesting to hear. And I think I made a mistake in the previous podcast with Packy. I uh, I might have said that you picked up the punch that knocked out Chris Pius or that 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 rocked him and hurt him from Floyd Patterson. But I think I, I did your your trainer at the time a disservice. No, the Floyd Patterson combination punch that I am. I learned from Floyd Patterson was, well, it was, it was not so much from Floyd. Well, I learned a lot from Floyd Patterson in a short space of time. I mean, you know, he, he was trained with a great customado. Floyd Patterson, who was very, loved the Irish. His wife was from Mayo descent. And they uh, just loved me being around him. And it was very good to me, you know, up in New Pulse when I trained with him. And he taught me, you know, some very simple little moves, little body positions, and little ways of throwing punches that, you know, Totally uh, changed my, my punching power and improved my punching power. You know, throughout my career, sometimes I'd go out and I'd hit guys and knock them out cold. Other times I'd go out and I'd land shots and I wouldn't knock them out. And I couldn't understand why. And, and the reason was I'd never been really shown how to punch correct. Sometimes I punched correct without realizing it. Sometimes I didn't. But Floyd Patterson showed me some very subtle moves, very simple positioning and footwork that made a big difference in, in my punching power. So a combination I practiced with him was for looking to come and fight against a guy called Fairman Serino, who was a middleweight contender who'd fought Nigel Ben, fought a lot of good fighters and, and had beaten a, a current middleweight champion called, um, it was either Matthew Hilton or one of the Hilton brothers from from uh, Canada. He beat him, but it was called a draw. So I was, I was getting ready to fight him and I knew if, if I beat this guy convincingly, I can prove to him all that I deserve to be at the top uh, scales of the middleweight division because the middleweight champion, Hilton, um, in, you know, a great cha- fighter. 
you know, was you know, didn't beat this guy. So I thought if I could stop this guy and knock him out, I'd prove that I'm, you know, I am one of the best out there. So I, I, I watched a um, Jersey Joe Walcott clip and I saw the move that Jersey Joe Walcott um, used, combination he used, which with the cut training from Floyd Patterson, I knew, I said, if I land this shot on um, Fairman Serena, this shot he's open for because he carries his hands a bit wide. If I can get in close and land this punch, this will do it. And I practiced it over and over again. And, and um, yeah, I returned back to the Petronellis and this was the first fight I had with them and returning back to them because I temporarily left them. And the Fairman Serena fight came off in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And this was a big, big fight for me. And, and ringside was... Uh, uh, Bob Arum watching. So I knew Bob Arum sitting ringside. So he's he's here for a reason. I got him impressed. So when I knocked out um when I knocked out uh Fairman Serena, Bob Arum came to ringside and said, Yes, I'm gonna make the uh Nigel Bent fight next for Steve Collins. That was it, I proved myself. But that never happened because a bigger payday for Nigel Bent came along against uh Iran Barkley. And once again I was kicked into touch because uh there was bigger fights out there. Not Better fights at fights, but bigger money fights. So I was once again put on the um, the shelf and I had to, you know, continue on fighting the contenders and keep plugging away till I got my chance. Well, that's interesting because that's probably where the that's one of the first places where the Nigel Bank Ben Links comes because when you're about to fight him the first time, you're saying I've wanted him for so long and he's going to mm-hmm. get it now. This is this is finally it. we'll we'll come to Ben in a minute. Um, so you you win that WBO title against Chris Pyatt. And I think you're the first Irish middleweight champion for uh, for about a hundred years, going back to nonpareil Jack Dempsey. Yeah, waited a long time. You know, I I explained to people, you know, I, yeah, I won the middleweight title. I was the middleweight champion of the world. Yeah, I I in my heart and soul believe I was the best middleweight in the world. But a lot of great fighters, a lot of great boxers, you know, both sides of the Atlantic, north, south, wherever the hemisphere, you know. You know, well, good enough to be world champions. I never got the chance or the breaks or the opportunity to fight for world titles, you know. I did. Um, maybe if I hadn't got the chance to fight for the world title through default, I could have gone through my whole career saying, you know, I was good enough to be world champion, never got the shot. A lot of great fighters don't get the opportunities to fight for world titles and, and never get the chance to prove they are the best in the world. So I got that chance, but I never forgot that I got the chance. I was lucky to get it and I got it through default. So it's great fighters out there never won world titles. So... You know, for people to say, oh, it's 100 years since an Irishman, you know, won the uh, world title middleweight. There's been great fighters before me who were good enough to win world titles. Never got the opportunity. You know, from Ireland or of Irish descent, I got the opportunity and I was lucky. So, you know, I, I, I never forget that. And it was a long time for an Irishman to be a world champion, but it doesn't mean to say those great fighters better than me mm. in between during those 100 years. Yeah, it was. It definitely was. The two sweetest words in the English language, uh, default. But um, so you, you got the opportunity because the WBO came about and there was just probably, well, not necessarily because of that, but that's that's how you found your the, the gate open for you to go in. And so that's a belt that's since been won by Andy Lee. And yeah. uh, now, now another another Irishman is going to fight for us soon. Uh, November 19th, Jason Quigley's taking on Demetrius Andrade. Have you got an interest in that fight? And do you I, take- I, I, always, I always have an interest in Irishman fight mm. because I'm an Irishman. I'm proud. And I, I think we have we have a mindset and, and, and a natural um, ability and, and, and a hardness in us. It goes back to my Celtic roots. I, when Irishman fights, I always watch with pride and I, and I hope they fight and, and put on a display that has become expected of us now. You know, we've got, we've built this reputation now that Irish fighters, you know, 
are tough. They've got great hearts. They give it 100%. And they're gentlemen. And they're fair. And they're honest fighters. And that's a reputation we have. And I watch, you know, and I love to see Irish fighters, you know, show and continue that reputation that we have throughout the world. So whenever an Irishman is fighting, I'm always interested. And I'm always proud. And I'm always rooting for them because, um, you know, we, we, we all have to team up with somebody. It's not by watching a boxing match to enjoy a boxing match. It's always better when you're rooting for one side. Absolutely. Uh, so Andy Lee, who who won the title back in 2014 by knocking out Matt Korobov, is now training Jason Quigley for that fight with uh, Demetrius Andrade. It's a tough ask. We've seen Luke Keeler, who used to be in your brother Pascal's gym, or uh, uh, Pascal trained him for years, and you probably know Luke very well. We've seen Luke come up against Andrade and fall short. How do you think Quigley is fixed to mount the challenge? Well, Quigley's certainly got the tools. He's certainly got the ability. And in his corner, he's got a man who, who who's who's come from the Kronk's gym, who's trained by, you know, the greatest fighters, coaches, fighting coaches in, in the world. So, and plus he went on to become a world champion. So there's a lot of knowledge there, a lot of good advice there, and the ability is there. So he cannot but feel um, um, positive that he, he, he'll put it out of the bag and he'll do it. And, and I hope he does. Um, because, you know, it, it's, to me personally, it creates more interest in the middleweight division. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jason does probably in- encapsulate a lot of those qualities that you mentioned about an Irish boxer. So he is a, a gentleman and he is a, a tough fighter. He's going to give it his all. We saw that in his last fight against Shane Mosley Jr. where he had to dig deep. But, uh, I well, suppose- he, did, he did dig deep and he did uh, confirm that we, we, we have the heart and the, and the willingness to, to win. And it's great. And I'm very proud when I see Irish fighters do that. You know, mm. throughout my career, you know, I was always very conscious as an Irish fighter. I mean, I maintained my Irish boxing license throughout my whole career, even when I was based in the, in the United Kingdom and fighting in Britain, I maintained my Irish license and because I, I wanted to promote Irish boxing. So whenever I fought in, in, in uh, the UK, um, I was classed as a foreigner, even though I lived in the UK, I resided in the UK and I'm married over here. Um, my Irish license was a foreign boxing license. So, you know, everything was, was a whole different approach to me over there through the rulings. Even when on my payments, there was withholding tax because I was a foreign fighter. I was living in the UK. And it wouldn't be so much easier for me to, you know, to have the British license. Um, but I wanted to keep the Irish license. I wanted, I wanted to, uh, to maintain. I wanted to be a proud. I wanted to say I'm the first Irish license fighter to win a world title, and I, I'm glad I've done that. So, you know, getting back to the point I was making, wherever I was, I was always very conscious that you know I'm an Irish fighter. So, from people who don't, you know hear about Ireland, you know, they hear negative stuff and positive stuff, but people seem to, you know, harp on the negative stuff. So I wanted people that when I performed to see me perform and say, oh, this guy's an Irish fighter. You know, this is how Irish fighters are. Oh, I like Irish fighters. So I always tried to go try and get the image of a positive uh, image from Irish boxing and and, and um, the lads out there now continue in the same vein to do the same. So, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that fight. looking forward to him to continue it was, uh, it was, the of Irish boxing. It was certainly an interesting... Um, position to have in England in the mid nineties, because, you know, back back home or in England, you know, you'd heard so much about so many negative stories about Ireland at the time, you know, from IRA bombings to various cultural stereotypes. And it was a big rule Britannia area as well. You'd done the double over Chris Eubank. And in, on July 6th, 1996, as you're preparing to face Nigel Benn now, a former a military man who served in Northern Ireland, as you're preparing to face him, do you know what the UK number one was, Steve? Do you have any idea? Number one boss. Uh, number one song in the charts. 
<laughs> no, not that time. No, probably yeah. do. No, tell me. Uh, they're still singing it to this day. So uh, three lines by Bareil Skinner and the Lightning Seed. So that as you prepare to face uh, Nigel Ben, that was that was probably on the radio somewhere in the in the uh, arena. You know, I left Ireland when I was very young. I've, I've traveled, I've lived in America, you know, Boston, California. I've lived in Belfast, you know, Channel Islands. I've moved around a lot. And, you know, people hear stories. Well, I've lived in the countries and I understand these stories. And I lived in the neighborhoods. You know, people have an opinion of Irish and Irish reputation in America, which is not always true. There's positive and negatives. Same in the UK. The same with the British in America and the British in Ireland. I've lived most of my life in the UK and, it's, and I love the country. It's a great country. I'm very happy here. And my kids are, you know, British with both Irish and British passports. My wife is British and we travel back and forth to Ireland a lot. We haven't decided yet where we're going to live. You may end up living in Ireland. And it's, there's a lot of, neg- there's negativity, but there's more positivity than negativity. I mean, I, I bring people back to Jack Charlton. You will not get a prouder and more accomplished Englishman than Jack Charlton. Jack Charlton, you know, played for England when he won the World Cup. A very proud and staunch Englishman and proud of his nationality. And he came to Ireland and we loved him. So I said, well, he's an Englishman and we love him. So what does that tell you? That, you know, the negativity is, forget the negativity. It's this man has come to Ireland. He made, you know, Irish football very successful. And probably the best era of Irish football was under an English World Cup medal winner who came over, and he should be a manager in England, but he ended up managing Ireland, and he loved it. He loved the Irish, and the Irish loved him. And in boxing, I, I feel I've got that in the UK, because everybody over here sees me. I'm the Celtic warrior. I'm Steve Collins. Understand? And I'm, I'm living here all my life. I've still got an Irish accent. So people over here have accepted me for what I am, and I'm welcomed. You know, I'm so busy over here. I get invited to a lot of functions. I meet people from all walks of life. And I'm, I'm, it's to me, I'm just glad to be over here as a, as, a, as a proud Irish man with an Irish passport and Irish boxing license was accepted and respected in the UK. And I always feel like, you know, I hope in my time, like Jack Charlton did, that he got rid of some of those negativities and some of those um, opinions people had. And to me, sport is the way to do it. And in sport, you know, in sport, we're not... Ireland's most successful sporting achievements have come in two sports, rugby and boxing. And there's only two sports, I believe, in the country that Ireland as an island is united. And they're both united in rugby and boxing. You know, so I've sat in dressing rooms with guys from both sides of the um, divide up in Northern Ireland. As one, we've carried the same flag in. We fought for the island of Ireland. I've seen it in rugby. And that's the great thing about sport. In sport, there's no barriers, there's no politics, there's no religions. It's a sport, it's a game, and we're on the same side. And it's, it's just great and it's wonderful. And that's how I see, um, that's how I see our, our, our island of Ireland. Every, we're all Irishmen. I don't care what your political bias is or your political interest is or what your religion is. The, the problem or the, or the positive thing is you're born on the island of Ireland. So you're an Irishman. And what kind of Irishman you are, I don't really care. You're an Irishman and you're a brother to me. And that's how I see it. And I've got friends from all walks of, of, of life in Ireland. And to me, we're all Irishmen. Yeah, no, well said. And I agree with the sentiments. Um, but there is nothing like uh, an Ireland versus England rivalry, be that rugby, boxing, soccer, and uh, even like listen, the matches when Jack Rabbit is in charge. That's, that's, that's the great thing about sport. It's the banter and the crack, right? It's nothing like Dublin versus Kerry. Do you understand? So it's the same thing. It's nothing like, you know, Rovers, Shamrock Rovers versus Bowes. You know, when neighbors, raw neighbors. So therefore, it's nothing like Ireland 
versus England. You understand? Yeah. It's not like the three nations taking on South Africa. You know what I'm saying? So in sport, we can be against each other. Shamrock Rovers all thrown insults at each other. The following weekend, Ireland against England, but all together on the same stance, cheering together as one against sport. That's great about sport. It's, it's competitiveness among ourselves. It always makes it interesting. Of course, we love beating England. Everybody loves beating England. I sit here and I watch games, rugby games, with my wife and our, our England uh, jersey because she's a proud, she's an English role. She's a very proud English lady. Mm. She loves rugby. She loves Ireland. But when Ireland are playing England, she's going to wear her England jersey and not wear her Irish jersey. And um, depending on who wins, um, you know, the other person has to clean up the room. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great crack. It's healthy. But in sport, it's, it's just the love of sport. Sport is not politics. Sport is, is, is um, it's the, it's the only place we can be united. Oh, absolutely. Well, look, the, the weekend that you fight Nigel Ben for the first time is uh, the Spice Girls come out with their first single, Wannabe. Uh, Nelson Mandela steps down as South Africa president and Steffi Graf wins her seventh Wimbledon title. Movies released uh, that month, July of 96, include Kingpin, A Time to Kill, Multiplicity and Phenomenon. That's got to... You know what? You may as well be talking Swahili to me. When <laughs> I was boxing, preparing for fights, I didn't have television. I didn't read newspapers. I, went to, I, I was a hermit. I went into camp. I spend eight weeks in camp. I'd live alone. I'd see people in the gym and I'd go home. I'd run my own in the mornings. I, I, I became, I went into a mindset where nothing mattered to me. My only thing that concerned me was my weight, my strength, my fitness, and how I'm going to beat my opponents. You know, there could have been atrocities or great things happening throughout my preparation for my world title. I didn't know. I didn't see it. I didn't care. All I consumed me, all that consumed me was my opponent and my fight. After the fight, I come home. And, you know, and get my kids and hug my kids and be around my family and just eat and drink and, and, and have fun. So what was going on in the world outside of my boxing uh, match didn't exist and I didn't really care. I was only concerned about one thing and that was winning my fight. How closely did you study your opponent in order to get gain an advantage over them? Some people say they don't watch the tape, but I don't think that was uh, quite your game. You probably I, tried I to figure them out. I, I studied them in a way, um, I sometimes knew them better than them. Study that boxing style and the, and the, the strengths and weaknesses. Well, I studied the strengths in the ring and the weaknesses in the ring. I also studied the psyche. I wanted to know what, what made them tick, what 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 weakened them, what, what strength, you know, what did they try upon, what what you know, what weakened them, what took away their um the strengths and what gave them the strengths and and, and had to, you know, undo what made them good and, and bring negativity into them. So it was a physical and mental approach as well as a boxing approach for me. Mike Tyson has a quote about Nigel Ben. He says, I don't, I don't think there's ever been a boxer more keen to score a knockout than Nigel Ben. What were Nigel Ben's strengths and weaknesses uh, as you had figured out going into that first contest? Um, well, Nigel Ben scared me and worried me because um, I fought Chris Eubank and had a re- I made a really good payday with Eubank. I could have retired because um, money went a lot further in those days than it does now. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, but I, I, it was now about glory. And Nigel Ben... Going back to um, what happened after I've been training with uh, up in New Pulse with, with, uh, for the famous Serena fight, I was promised uh, the Noise of Ben fight, but then the Ram Barkley fight came along. Noise of Ben done something in the United States that no one else ever done in, in my era. Probably since then, it has happened with uh, uh, Tyson Fury. But up until then, British fighters came to America with great reputations and then you know, had a commutance and were beaten up and sent packing back to London. Noise of Ben came over. And done something that was never done before by a British fighter. He smashed up Iran Barkley. He beat up uh, Rock and Robbie Sims, who was Marvin Hagler's half brother, who was number one contender in the foreign 
former sparring partner of mine who was a hell of a fighter. He beat him up and then he went and, and smashed up Doug Dwight, Doug Dwight, Doug Dwight, sorry. Mm. All world champions, all top contenders. And these are the guys, the three big fighters above me that I was aiming to fight to become a world champion or to defend against. And Nigel Vane came over, he smashed them all up, grabbed the belts, wiped the slate clean in America, hopped on the plane and took everything back to London and left me in the wilderness in Boston with no world title over there, no big names to fight. And I thought, feck you, Nigel Vane. <laughs> you've, you've undone everything I've worked for for the last 10 years. I had to restart my whole career. And I knew that if I was going to get a chance at fighting for the world title, it wasn't going to happen in America. So I knew I had to move and start all over again back in, in, in the UK. And it was Nigel Vane that created that. And he set my career back about four or five years. And I said, oh, I'm going to get him one day. And I'm going to, he's going to pay for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thank you, Nigel. Much appreciated. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You know, Nigel is a friend of mine. I could pick the phone to Nigel Ben. I have great respect for him. You know, no one knows fighters better than fighters. Public have opinions and see things, but it's not until you're in the ring with a man and he punches you in the face and you taste that glove and you experience that experience with them, you get to know them. And then you understand them a lot better than the, you know, the viewers would or people around them would. In, in a boxing match, you find out a lot about a person and the personality. And I, I like Nigel Ben. He, he was great asset for boxing. I could pick the phone up to Nigel today if I want to ring him on the phone and talk to him. You know, personally outside, He's, he's a very likable man, and I do like his company. And uh, but back then, that wasn't how it was. He, I didn't see him as a person; I saw him as an obstacle in my way. But since then, I've got to know him, and I, and I like him. I think he's a good guy. 
you were quite versatile in the ring. You were able to kind of march forward, maraud, beat up, wrestle, kind of, I suppose, almost like Tyson Furious. He can do it. He can do it any way he likes, really. The box in the back foot. Thank, thank you for that comparison. That, that's a wonderful comparison. I mean, Tyson Fury is a, is a great, great fighter. He would, would have been a contender, definitely a contender, or even probably a world champion in any era, in any era, going back over 100 years, but you can't say a lot for it, as you could say that about. But Tyson, you've just compared me to Tyson Fury. Thank you very much. I will say, he's got a better advice than me, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to see after seeing like him, and I could, I haven't seen him in the ring afterwards. I think it's because of the um we had Peter McNeely on last year, uh, who fought Mike Tyson oh my you God. Know Peter. And Peter I was, was a sparring, I sparred Peter for years. Peter yeah. was one of my sparring partners. I sparred him for years. Peter was a lovely guy. A lot of people don't realise his dad fought Floyd Patterson for the heavyweight championship of the world. Yeah, no, Peter, boxing boxing is tiny. It's tiny. Peter, it's Peter, his dad fought uh, Floyd Patterson. His dad fought for the world title against Floyd mm. Patterson, the heavyweight. Yeah. So Pete McNeely comes from a you know great um, boxing heritage and he's a lovely, lovely guy. And yeah, I mean, it's a I remember Pete when he was amateur and I remember him pro. We were all based in the Spectrum at his gym in Brockton. But that, was a, that was a quote he gave us. Uh, we were asking him about his time sparring you and he just said, Steve Collins, and he, his voice is kind of uh, affected now by his issues over the years, but he'd say, he said it in a way that's just struck stuck with me for the time since we made the interview since we did the interview and he said Steve Collins could do it all and that's just the way he put it he could do it all and uh, yeah he's a lovely he's a lovely guy unfortunately he didn't take care of himself you know um, he's, he seems to be doing well now um, what a good man and, and you know I hope things improve for him because in his heart he's, a, he's an absolute gentleman but he's he's sober and he's he's involved in boxing in the gym you know and he's training kids and he's happy and he's happily uh I think he's engaged or is he married? But he's happily in a relationship and he's in a good place. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you very much. That's cheered me up because, you know, I love fighters. I love, you know, in boxing, the best people and nicest people in boxing are the boxers. And I have great respect and I, I love fighters, you know. And, and, and um, I'm glad. I want everybody to be, every boxer who's boxed, they can't all be world champions, but I want them all to do well in life and move on because I have great admiration for them for what they do and, and uh, great respect for them. I mentioned Fury. Uh, you have a common trainer. Now, he didn't work with Tyson Fury for too long, but Freddie Roach, what did he give to you um, when you joined up with him in the in the 90s? And by the time you're facing Nigel Ben, you're on top of the world, effectively. And what <laughs> top, is... Top of the world, that's what I'm saying. Top of the headstone. Harry like reached say, the top. I was saying Italian now, Chima del Mondo. Uh, I'm speaking a little bit about Italian now because my wife's got a holiday home there, so I have to learn some Italian. So I'm over in Italy and, and people in Italy say, uh, uh, you know, come and start and so on. And I go... Chima del Mondo, I don't know what I'm talking about, but all the local Italians now understand when I say Chima del Mondo, it's top of the world. And because I'm Irish, it means I'm great. So I meant to just a new saying to Italy. Um, get back to what you're asking, if you get. Sorry. Fair enough. No, I was just asking. I, I go on. It's a bit, it's a bit of a Ronnie, um, uh, Ronnie Corbett moment there, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, it's worth it. You know, we live for that sort of stuff. But I was wondering, what did Freddie Roach bring to you uh, at that stage? Because you're going to fight Nigel Ben. You know, he can, he can knock you out at any time of the fight. That's probably in your head. Well, what like how how good was Freddie as a coach back then? He was only getting established, I suppose. This is twenty five years ago now. Um, I'll, I'll kind of give you two answers to that question uh, about me and about Freddie as well. Going back to my first fight as a kid, right through, I had different amateur coaches, and you know, I'd pick up something from each one, and, and these, you know, learn their styles, different styles, and but throughout my boxing professional boxing career, you know. <sighs> It's all about knowledge. Knowledge is, is, is this key to everything. And I believe in my heart and soul that I had 
the ability to be a world champion, but sometimes the things weren't working for me and I wanted to do things I didn't know how. And I had great coaches and trainers, but sometimes they brought me to the level where they gave me all they could give me and couldn't give any more. And I knew there was more for me to learn and more to do. And I couldn't go further. So then I would change trainer to add, to bring the knowledge I had from a previous coach to my new coach and get what I could from him. And then, you know, get as much as I can from him and then bring that to my next coach. I had the best professional coaches in the world as a, as a professional fighter. I spent most of my career with the Petronellis. I was in the gym and Marvin Hagler was still a world, world champion. Training, you know, doing, working on the bags, sparring the ring, his ring and my ring, you know, be sparring, you know, watching him, rubbing shoulders with him, picking up what he learned, learning from his great coach, I learned. Then I went to Flight Patterson and I got something from Flight Patterson that I didn't get from Petronelli, but I had something from Petronelli that I brought to the Flight Patterson gym. So then I had the Petronelli coach and the Flight Patterson coach. And then I went from there. I actually ended up for a while with Jimmy Tibbs in London, who smashed me in the gym. And I picked up stuff from Jimmy Tibbs, who was a great coach. I returned to the United States to the Petronellis. And from the Petronellis, then I went over to Belfast and I hooked up with a guy called Bernard Chekin, who came from South, South America, a Panamanian fighter. He showed me so much about the Panamanian style of fighting, inside movements, lateral movement, body shots, walking around. So I, ha- I was gaining all this knowledge from the Petronellis, the Five Patterson, the Jimmy Tibbs, you know, to um, Bernard Chekin. Yeah. Then I went to London. And one of the most underestimated coaches, who's not a household name, he should be, was a coach called Freddie King, who had four world champions in his gym whilst I was there. And Freddie King was a Londoner who, if you didn't know him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't appreciate him. But I got to know him. And what he taught me in boxing, what I learned from him was absolutely amazing. It just clicked with me, everything he showed me. So I'm getting all this knowledge, and I just gained so much knowledge in the ring. So by the time I came around, Fighting Christie Bank for the first time, I just felt like I knew everything. I knew everything. I learned everything. There was very little I needed to learn. And I brought all this into my preparation, all this knowledge with me. After the first of the Bank, I changed management and I changed trainer. You know, and all my past coaches, boxing trainers, were all great people. I have great respect for them. I loved them all. And they all gave me something in my career. When I came to Freddie Roach, who, by the way, I made my debut. When I made my debut in 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 um in Massachusetts, uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, on the same card was myself, Freddie Roach, and Mickey Ward. We were the three Irish guys. That's very good. The three leaves of the Shamrock fighting this big Irish show in Lowell, Massachusetts. So this was in the early days when we were all contenders. You know, we were fighting on the same cards, and this was amazing because we all know how well you know uh, Mickey Ward done with the great fights he had with Gary and the Legend and the movie. We all know how great Freddie Roach is and. And then I had my success, and we were all we were the Irish fighters fighting on the, on the on the small cards in, in Boston and in Lowell and Brockton, you know. And it was just great sharing the dressing rooms and experience with these guys fighting on, on their, you know, American TV. So when I came to Freddie, actually my first my first training session with Freddie was in my old amateur gym in Saviors in Dublin. Freddie was over with a guy called Justin Fortune who was fighting uh, Lennox Lewis in Dublin. So a great. Boxing uh, common, uh, writer called uh, George Kimball from the Boston Herald was in Dublin. And I was talking to George. I said, George, I'm looking for a trainer. I want to return to the States. He said, well, Freddie is coming over. Freddie is really, is a, is, you know, is a good guy. He's a good trainer. And I said, Freddie Roach, yeah, I know Freddie. We boxed together. He's a lovely guy. He's, Steve said, he's a very good coach. He said, he's going to be one for the future. 
So Freddie was in Dublin. So I said to Freddie, uh, Freddie, you know, I'm looking for a coach. I'm thinking of moving back to the States. Let's go to my local amateur gym, and, which he was using in preparation for the professional show. And we do some uh, coaching. So I, me and my amateur gym, the gym I won my, my um, amateur and national middleweight title with on, on, on a great coach I had called young John McCormick and his brother Pat McCormick. And I'm in the gym there doing my first training session with Freddie Roach. And I only spent half an hour in the gym doing some pad walks and I knew straight away. I said, Freddie, I said, I want you to be my coach when I move on and move back to the States. And he said, no problem, Steve. He said, but I, right now, at this time, I coach and train a current uh, Superman champion of the world, uh, Frankie Lyles. He said, my, he said, I'm loyal to him. He said, but he said, I've no problem training you as well. You could be opponents one day. I said, Freddie, I don't care. You know, I just want you to coach me and you can coach him at the same time as me. I couldn't give a damn. It doesn't bother me. He said, that's fine. Once you know this, Steve, he said, you know, I'm, I'm loyal to both of you. But Freddie is my man that's there before you. So I'd have to go with him if you fight each other. Not a problem. So we got that out of the way, which I looked at Freddie. He was straight and honest. But yeah, getting back to where I am, in my amateur gym, the last amateur gym I trained in, it's my first gym. I've done my training session with Freddie Rose. And I just thought, this is great. This is all part of the magic, you know? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so me, and Freddie, me and Freddie hooked up and I knew he was the man for me. But getting back to answering your question, what is it about Freddie Rose that worked? I brought all this knowledge to Freddie. And, you know, when we had fights coming off, I'd say to Freddie and sit down, Freddie, I'm fighting this guy. This is how I think the fight should go. This is how I'm going to approach him. This is how I want to fight him. You know, what do you think, Freddie? And these are the punches and combinations I want to practice. What do you think, Freddie? You understand? The Freddie Roach, unlike a lot of coaches, never said to me, no, 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 we'll do it this way. He said, right, Steve, we'll do it that way, but I'll put a few tweaks in here and I'll put a few tweaks in there and I'll work with what you have and I'll try and improve and try and add mine to it. Do you understand? Mm. It wasn't his way. It was the best way. And his openness and broad-mindedness and his intelligence told me that this man can work with me and understands me and respects my opinions and will work with me and do it my way, but slip in his input and make it work that way. So it was the magic with Freddie that I think was, 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 was brought everything together for me in my professional career. Yeah, it sounds like it all clicked there. But at the beginning of that card in the Nyx Arena in Manchester, July 6th, things kind of come awry. Your brother Pascal suffers his first professional defeat. He's 10-0. and 0. He goes in against a guy called Darren Littlewood and he's beaten by half a point after a four-rounder. Did that put a bit of a dampener on it or was it just no, no, he, it's no, a four-rounder? He, he didn't lose the fight. It's, mm. it's decisions. You know, you can lose the decision and you can lose a fight. Many people have won fights and lost decisions. If Parcel got beaten by a better guy in the night, you say, you know, this guy's better than you, you're not the best. But he wasn't beaten by a better guy in the night. Circumstances, situations, politics, forever. He didn't get the decision. That's not what matters. He was a guy who took a boxing late in life and was mainly went straight into the professional game after a short amateur career. The difference was on that night, he was improving from his last fight. So he's moving in the right direction. Results are nothing. Results don't mean anything. If a guy's fighting and he's improving, whether he's winning or not, doesn't matter. He's going to get to a stage where he's improving, reaching the top of his game and he's going for the big fights and the title fights. That's when it gets important. Losing is not, it's not about losing. It's, not, it's about how you're progressing. He fought better in that fight than he did in his last fight. We thought he won it. Didn't matter about the results. He was still an, an improving fighter. Therefore, we were happy. Losses, W's and L's at the end of your name doesn't mean anything. It's how you finish your career at the end of your career is what counts. In the chief support of your fight, there was a Tilani Malinga who'd beaten Nigel Ben previously. Sugar Boy. Sugar Boy, yeah, against Sugar Vincenzo Boy. Nardiello from Italy. Um, they fought for the WBC title. Was it likely that you, if you beat kind of Ben without any controversy or any need for a rematch, that you would have fought the winner maybe to unify? 
Malinka, the awkward, lanky sod, was a lovely guy, upset my plans. Okay. And I know Nigel. I understand what happened, right? Nigel Ben is 10 times the fart Malinga is. But Nigel Ben has made a mistake we all make. Get complacent. Nigel Ben knew he was going to fight me after Malinga, okay? And Nigel Ben was thinking more about me than Malinga. Malinga to him was an opponent that he should have wiped out. But he didn't. And he went in, underestimated his opponent. Malinga knew it was the biggest fight of his career. Last chance he's going to get for a world title. Went in at his best and stole the fight from Nigel. So instead of me fighting Nigel for a, you know, two titles, yeah. you know, uh, fight, I was only ending up defending my title. So instead of two guys, the WBC, WBO fighters getting around for a unified title fight, it was me defending my WBO title against Nigel, which probably cut my purse in half. Um, so I don't know what it is about Nigel, but he was just my echo's heel. Yeah. <laughs> so Malinga uh, upset me doing that. I wanted to bash him up for doing that, but he wouldn't come near me. He was happy to have his own title and make easy fights. Uh, but there you go. That's life. Yeah, well, you, you were his Achilles ankle that night. I, I was watching again ringside. You've got uh, Prince Nassim Hamid sitting alongside Patsy Kenzid and Liam Gallagher. It's Ben's 15th world title fight, but you seem to have his number early and um, Ben goes down with a hurt ankle in the fourth round. Uh, 60 seconds left and you know the fight's the fight's soon over um, you celebrated like quite ha- quite happily I suppose you're just delighted to be out of the ring with Nigel Ben because at any time you know that he can cause you pain what was it like to get hit in the head by Nigel Ben? I think going back to the press conference I think I had Nigel on the back foot especially when he lost his rag and, 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 and tried to take on Jimmy McGee at the press conference I might not be aware of that googling to find it he, uh, he got a bit he, you know I upset him at the press conference I had a knack for doing that and Jimmy McGee tried to talk to him and he got a bit of book with Jimmy McGee. Jimmy McGee was taking his jacket off. Jimmy McGee was going to knock Nigel Ben out, which I'm glad he didn't because it would have cost me a payday. Um, so I knew then, I've got him on the back foot. I've got him rattled. He's angry now. He wants to kill me. He's going to come in blind. That's exactly what I want him to do. So he'd already made a mistake by losing his cool with me. So that was my first objective in the fight with Nigel Ben. My main concern with Nigel Ben was his punching power. Um, and I go on to Something now, I was supposed to fight Nigel Ben two years ago, by the way, and I'll tell you about why I didn't. Mm. It was on the car's contract, it was in front of me, never signed it, but I'll tell you why. Yeah, <laughs> fighters, you know, slow down, thrown weight, you know, this and that, but there's one thing a fighter never, ever loses is power. You never lose your power. Sometimes as you get all the game power, I actually think now when I hit the bag, I'm punching harder than I ever did because your body changes and you change and your density changes and your knowledge changes, um, but I haven't got the same mode. Ability to slip shots and move around, and my stamina wouldn't be the same. But I can tell you now, I'm punching harder now than I did when I was fighting on the bag. So, fighters never lose their power. Noiser Ben had power that was damaging. And we know that from his career. And a lot of fighters, you know, have that power. And there's no doubt that when the bell rang, I was going to walk to Noiser Ben and I was going to walk right up within his firing range. And I was there and I was going to go for it. But I was going to take the give. And I, I had to accept that this could go either way. But I accepted that. And I was just concerned that, you know, when Nigel Ben hits me, how, how's it going to affect me? And when he did, Nigel did catch me crack on the left hook. And uh, he caught me and I just, I, I kind of, I, I went through it. And I knew he landed his best shot. And this is like milliseconds. It seemed like a long time in there. And when that happened, I looked straight into Nigel Ben's eyes because he knew and I knew that he landed his best shot and I'm here looking at him and he's there looking at me and I went, 
that's it, Nigel, you can't hurt me. And he went, I've landed my best shot. I can't knock him out. And the fight changed in that moment. From that moment on, we're saying it was over. The fight was over because Nigel knew that my strength and my continuous aggression was going to stop him. And after that, the fight ended. And um, that was a moment, which a millisecond, but we both knew. That's boxers understanding that that millisecond told us both what was going on, what the turnout of the fight was going to be. And the relief was on my side and the concern was on his side because that big punch had landed and how we both reacted to it was when the fight ended, I believe. He, he, I suppose he didn't, uh, he was just a bit downhearted. He didn't probably try and land it again and again and again, try and knock down the wall. Like, uh, as you know, well, you're never going to knock down the wall with he, a sledgehammer he, the first time. He did, he did try and land again and again and again, but he knew that I was going to be landing again and again and again. And I yeah. taking his best shots and my, my best shots were, I was breaking him down. He wasn't breaking me down. So, you know, that was it. The fight, the fight ended then. And then I just think when he went down on his ankle, I think, I think his, his ankle went, but I think his, his interest went. I think he just thought, I can't win this. This is not what happened. And then afterwards, you know, people have very short memories. I went up and I, I think I took the microphone at the ringside of the fight and defended him because the people who booed me coming in booed him going out. And I kind of said, no, you can't do this. You know what I mean? I, I told the crowd not to boo him. I said, no, he's a warrior and so on. And, you know, I'm saying to me, I won the fight. You know what I mean? Don't slag Nigel off. And Nigel was very unhappy with what happened that night and came to me and said, I, I want a rematch. And I said, Nigel, you deserve a rematch. You know, you're a great champion, a great fighter. And, you know, there's easier fights out there for me, but it's not right. Let's, let's both get it on again and let's put this to bed once and for all because you can beat me. And I, I believe I can beat you. But what happened the last fight was dealt. Let's remove the dealt and get it on one more time. Second time round, I think I came in even stronger and more prepared. And I know he came in stronger and more prepared because it was his last hurrah. And then luckily enough, then I had the strength and the ability to, uh, to win again second time round. Yeah, second, second time was even more dominant, all right. You kind of outlanded him two for one in terms of punches. Um, and did you, did you feel you were just going from strength to strength at that time? Well, I hadn't got the fear of Nigel. I said, Nigel's, gonna, Nigel's not going to hit me. I'm not going to let him hit me. But if he does get one through, I'm going to walk through it. So I don't, I'm, you know, I'm cautious, I'm sensible, but I haven't got that deep fear that I had in the first fight because, I, you know, I can take it. You still, you still got docked a, uh, a point in the fifth round for use of the head, but I suppose you had to I used do everything. To head, yes. <laughs> I never used to head in my life. It's, it's clashed heads. The referee's got to give him something. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a British icon, you know, so it doesn't matter. I don't even remember that. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was. Me playing it safe. I learned that from Marvin Hagler. Marvin Hagler had many head clashes in his career and he always came out best. Um, in the beginning, I didn't. But I learned from Marvin Hagler how to position yourself. So if there's a head clash, you come out best. And therefore, when there's head clashes, I usually came out best. Sometimes referees didn't like it. But hey, I didn't. I never went in with the head in my career. Never, never had to. My hands could reach forward in my head. Didn't need to use my head. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, at that stage, I think the WBO super middleweight title had only been held really by Tommy Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Chris Eubank, and yourself. So mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a title you're very proud of. And you would have presumably gone through hell to, to hold on to it. And maybe you, you needed to at certain stages against Nigel Ben. I suppose by the time you have your hand raised at the sec, at the end of the second fight, did you think that it would be, I'm not going to say easy because Jesus Christ, like there's no way that was, there's no way that was easy, but did you expect to even be on the floor a couple of times, you know, and still win? Because I'm sure you, you never doubted yourself, but um, no. at the end, was it relief or what, what was it? It was, it was everything. It was relief. It was excitement. It was happiness. It was, it was like achievement. It was everything, you know. 
It was everything that in career, it was everything a boxer could want in his career. I got it. And I'm so lucky to have experienced it. It was everything that meant anything to the fire went through my mind that time. Very soon afterwards, my situation was, you know, I'm 32 years old, getting close to 33, you know, probably going past my peak a bit. What else? What else? Because like, two good paydays and I was a Ben and a good payday because Chris Bank was secure. I owned a lovely home, happy days, you know. What, why do I need to continue doing this? Look at what happened with great fires in the past. Why do I need to stay here? I don't need this anymore. I need a reason to continue longer. And the only reason I stayed on after Nigel Ben was because they kept dangling the carrot in front of me, the Roy Jones fight, the Roy Jones fight, and I kept going and asking for that fight. And that's the only reason I continued after Nigel Ben. Every other fight to me was a fight to tick over, to keep me going for the Roy Jones fight. And that's was the most dangerous time of my career. I didn't give credit and underestimated opponents because to me, they went, it was just a time filler until I got to Roy Jones. And when the Roy Jones fight came about that it wasn't going to happen, I, I, I woke up one day and I said, I'm 33 years old. I'm, I'm secure. You know, I've been at this game a long time. I'm a faculty there in order. I, I've, I've done great things, more than I ever expected to do. I've had opportunities I never expected to get. Roy Jones is not going to happen. There's no more big names out there. My generation's finished. There's a hundred up-and-coming young fighters who are just the new generation. I'm past that now. It's time for me to go. So that's, that was what happened when I didn't get the right Jones fight. Yeah, and we saw what, what happened again. There was another bit of a, a glory generation for, the, for British boxing with the super middleweights. Joe Calzaghe, unfortunately, never fought Carl Frosch, but then there's the... George Groves, James the Gale generation as well. So yeah, there's always a new generation. And now we see like, you know, Calum Smith has done well there, but Saul Alvarez, Canelo is the top dog now. Um, how do you think he would have fared against the, the greats uh, at 168 of the 90s? Canelo. Mm. Canelo has, you know, you look at an opponent, okay? You look at all their ability and you say, right, they're good at this, they're good at this, they're good at this, they're good at this. But where are the weaknesses or where do you have an advantage over them? So you look at Canelo and you say, right, He's very good at this. He's very good at that. But he's only five foot six. He's not a genuine middleweight. So he's carrying, you know, he wouldn't have to. So you give me a, you give me a man that can match him in every department. who's physically bigger. The physically bigger man will beat him. So if you can match him in this, in, in every department he is, or if you can nullify where he's strong and you use your other advantages, which, you know, if you put, I've, oh God, I'd love to fuck Canelo. How would I fight Canelo? Right. Canelo inside, great combination for him. I can fight inside too. I'm not as good as him. So I can nullify him inside, steal shots inside, keep my distance because I'm taller, lean on, use my strength, up the pace. You understand? These are the things. If I was to fight him, this is how you approach it, you know? You, you, you take away his advantages and, 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 you, and you, 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 you use what you have advantages over him. It's, it's, it's a chess game with pain and punches. You understand? Yeah. That's how I see boxing. Yeah. Canelo, what is on great say, maybe the likes of Marvin Hagler. Done really well because uh, Marvin Hagler was a small middleweight. Although Marvin Hagler bashed up Tommy Hearns, Tommy Hearns would knock out Canelo. You know what I'm coming? Yeah. Oh, well, he's done. The triangle you know, theory's never really worked today. This guy would well, beat this guy because he, he beat this. Yeah. No, it's all about different stories. Anyway, and uh, Canelo would, would be a champion at, at any, at, you know, in any era. He could have fought 100 years ago and been a champion. He can fight today 100 years ago and is a champion. Some fighters, you know, can fight. And he's, you know, in the old days, he would have made it. In the modern times, he can make it. 
there are fighters who are good at certain areas, but the Canelo's this world, you know, a good enough world champion in any area, in any great fighters around. They were obviously contenders and definitely good enough to be a contender or a world champion. Yeah. Before we wrap up, Steve, you hinted at uh, telling us why you didn't sign the contract to fight Nigel Benn. Uh, there was also a suggestion a couple of years back, maybe six or seven years ago, of a Roy Jones Jr. fight, finally at last. But what, what, what uh, kept you out of the ring in recent years? Well, the Roy Jones thing is a banter. You know, we were in mm. England and I stood up and like, come on, Roy, why did you avoid me in front of the whole crowd? And he's getting out and I'm winding him up and I'm actually getting the better of him because he did avoid me. Um, but it's fun now, but it's, 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 it's past. But the peace of mind is he avoided me and he knows it. I'm happy with that, you know. He probably would have took me to school and gave me a boxing lesson, but he's never going to find out. He'd just be remembered. <laughs> yeah. He'd just be remembered as someone who ran. Um, and I love the guy and I've got his number too. I can call him and I say to him, I said, you, you know, the cleverest thing you did was avoid me. <laughs> anyway, getting back to Nigel, um, I, was, I, was, I was fifth. Go through phases, obviously, and I put a, few ba- I put a couple of bags in my barn, a little boxing ring, and I'm down, I'm hitting the bag, and I start smelling my sweat, and I start thinking, you know what, I still have it. And then uh, Nigel then wanted a rematch. And uh, there was talk, and then it became a reality. And I'm getting fifth. And, the, you know, and it's, it's become a reality. My wife was like, you know, thinking it's just the phase. But it's becoming a reality, and she's getting concerned. Uh, although she's got great faith in me. And the whole concern was, you know, why do you want to fight Nigel Ben? Why have we got the game? And I thought, you know, money, I can win the lottery tomorrow and make money. I can go back to work and make money. So is it money? Well, yeah, well, then that's the wrong reason. You've beaten them twice. Is it glory? No. Right, that's that. So what's the downside? You're in your 50s. Your body doesn't recuperate like it used to, you know? You're out riding your horse. In the past, when you fell off your horse, you bounced. Now, when you fell off your horse, you don't. You splat. <laughs> you hit the ground. You know? yeah. If you're boxing somebody now and you're getting hit, you know, what's going to happen? You can't, you know, the power's there. That's the problem. He still has the power. But you don't have the ability to slip, ride, parry, and step away from shots. So you're going to take punches as an older man. Why? And I thought, you know what, that's, my wife simplified it so much you know sometimes simplifying things makes more sense than whatever and I just thought you know what I don't know why I'm doing this I think I'm just because I feel I'm doing him a favour because I like him and I just thought no this is not for me and that was it I just you know I just contacted my wife so thank you you know it's great and so on but I'm not interested in doing it I don't want to do it it's, you know the reality is how it's hit me now and the reality is that I don't want to do it there's no point too much danger is involved I don't need it you know, I can live in the fact that I beat you twice. If you beat me this time, I can't live in the fact that I beat you twice and my bragging rights are gone. So forget about it. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Plus, I might get hurt. Yeah, I commend you for a mature decision in more ways than one, all right, Chad? It's probably the only mature decision <laughs> I've made in my boxing career, but yeah. I'm glad I made it. Yeah, I think boxers just take more damage over the age of kind of 35, 40 anyway. Just the, the composition of the brain, the ability well, yeah, to absorb punches. The body doesn't repair and recuperate like it does when you're when you're younger, you know. And plus, you know, I was people used to say, people still say, "Oh, Steve Collins, he, he'd walk in, he could hit him or everything, he could take punches." I I didn't really get hit clean in my career. Very seldom got hit clean. I watched Roberto Duran. I studied fires. Now, watch Roberto Duran. Roberto Duran could take shots, ride the shot, and come back and counter. And I developed that and practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. Something happened to me a couple of years ago. Um, seems like I'm bragging, right? I've been around horses all my life. Okay? I've, I've worked in racing stables as a teenager. I've rode in the gallops in the Phoenix Park, just when they existed. I've, I've exercised horses around the old Phoenix Park race course. I keep horses. I love horses. 
My wife show jumps. Horses are my passion. As a young man starting off, I wanted to be successful in my boxing career, to buy my own farm and have my own horse. That was my dream. And I'm living my dream, you know. I took up different sports. In the summer, I saw people playing polo in the Phoenix Park. I thought, this is great. And I, I, I used to ride our horses and help them out with their polo ponies and say, one day I'll play this game, you know. I play this game sometimes today. One time I was playing a game of polo, and there was a guy in front of me, a professional, who hit a ball, and he whacked the ball full force, and he was probably 30 metres from me, and the ball was coming straight for me. And these balls are made of solid wood. It was coming straight for me. It was like a, in slow motion. It looked like this was happening in slow motion. It was coming straight for my face. And it caught me in the jaw, the side of the face. And I moved my face with the ball. I rolled the shot, the polar ball. I moved it and turned back. Everybody thought my jaw was broke, my teeth were gone, and I was going to be comatized. But I actually rolled the shot. I come back and I did the swelling on my cheekbone. They couldn't believe my cheekbone wasn't shattered because if this guy hit a ball and made it flat. This is, I said, well, that's something that I've developed in my boxing career. You know, do I have that now? I don't think so. Would I have that against Nigel Ben? I don't think so. So that ability is gone. So therefore, if Nigel Ben throws the power he hasn't lost, my face and hits me and my heart and determination will keep on going and he hits me again and he hits me again and again and again. What's going to happen to me? You understand? It's, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get damaged. And the, and the, and the Irish, mindset that Irish fighters have is we never quit. We don't know how to quit. So therefore, sometimes in those scenarios, you get hurt. So that wasn't for me. No, that's uh, definitely a wise decision. And uh, a little secret of the pros you picked up that kept you, kept you safe on the polo field as well. So yeah, lucky lucky for it. Steve Collins. We've that was on. my forehead, my face. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Boom, boom. Oh, hang on a minute. See, now if I can't hit the noise of I wouldn't be sharp enough to say that to you, would I? <laughs> well, exactly. You got out clean and that's the main thing. You know, not many do in boxing. <laughs> it was 25 years ago, I believe, last year when I beat Eubank in the second fight in Parky Cave in Cork. And uh, the people of Cork are going to honour me my 25th anniversary, which obviously didn't happen due to coronavirus and so on. So on November the 20th, um, I'm being honoured in Cork. I'm receiving, uh, I believe, a, a key to the city from the Lord Mayor. And they're going to unveil a plaque for me in, in a sports park in Cork to commemorate my 25th anniversary and beating Chris Eubank there. So I'm looking forward to that. I want to thank the people of Cork for remembering me. I've nothing but good memories down there. And, uh, and being a Collins, I know I'll always be loved in Cork. <laughs> here, here. Well, thank you very much, Steve Collins, uh, the Celtic Warrior, for joining us today. It's been a privilege to, to have you on the show. And um, look, we'll, we'll talk to you again about the Chris Eubank double fight. Uh, you know, Mill Street, Parker Creek, so many stories there to hear about. And I look forward to doing it again. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.